Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. Hope you're doing great. It's a great day to be alive. We made it through another week without losing our brains, our minds, our hearts, our souls. Hope you're doing well. Hope your loved ones are doing well. It's going to be a good week. I have an excellent interview with you. I didn't interview you, probably, unless you're Oliver Berkman, who I did interview. He is the author of The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, which is the greatest title of all time. He also writes a column for The Guardian called This Column Will Change Your Life, in which he explores psychology and well-being. I can't wait for you to find out more about him if you don't know about him already. His writing is one of those things I was like, I didn't know about it, and then I found it, and I read it, and I was like, this guy's awesome. I love this guy. So that's coming up in a minute. Before we get to that, I need to let you know that this week's episode, folks, is brought to you by QuickBooks Online or QuickBooks Self-Employed. If you want 50% off of a great software tool that will simply and efficiently help you keep track of all your revenue and expenses for your small business or your self-employed person that you are, scroll down there past my face and go click on the link in the show notes. Crazy money earns a small referral fee. That's what it means to be brought to you by. I think these FTC regulations that have to explain what advertising is, it's a little insane. Like it's one thing if you see Kim Kardashian holding a hard soda or whatever the hell those things are. It's different if I'm reading an ad for accounting software. Wouldn't you think that that's clearly what that is as an advertisement? I don't know. Hey, a friend of mine gave me a little crap last week because my introduction was too long. And here's the thing, folks. If you don't like the introduction, your app has a fast forward button on it. Just hit 30 seconds in the future and you'll skip through my rambling. All right. You're not going to hurt my feelings if you do that. I do that on several podcasts, but he made it a little bit heartful because he said, I don't need to hear about your swim meet. And I thought that was kind of insightful of me to be grateful for a swim meet that was done in a non-traditional way. If you want to hear it, it's in last week's episode. Anyway, I want to tell you about John Whittemore. John Whittemore is a college friend. He's a dentist in Memphis, Tennessee. He's also a badass rock and roll guitarist. At some point, I might have to have him on here to share his story with you because he and I have had offline discussions about the pros and cons of chasing one's artistic dream and the pros and cons of maintaining one's professional stability. John gave me crap about my introduction. So let me tell you a story about John Whittemore from our freshman year of college. John's from Memphis, where Rhodes College is, where I went to college. And freshman year, about six of us were invited over to John's parents' house for a Sunday afternoon lasagna party. Well, before we went, we found ourselves strangely and concurrently hungry, very hungry for some reason. All six of us got the hungers at the same time. And uh, we went over there to Mrs. Whittemore's house and Mr. Whittemore's house. And we sit down at the table after some preliminary niceties. We sit down at the table where Mrs. Whittemore begins doling out the delicious melty cheesed lasagna. And she filled a plate of just a huge dining plate and she sat it in front of me. And being a good kid that I am, I waited and didn't start eating. And she observed this excellent behavior on my part. And she said, Paul, please go ahead and start eating while it's hot, which I did. And she went on to serve the other five fellas and Mr. Whittemore, and she served herself. And before she put the spatula down, she looked over at me and my empty plate and said, hey, Paul, while I'm still serving, can I get you some more since you appear to be done? To this day, when I think of Mrs. Whittemore, I think of the delicious lasagna we had at her house. Her son, unfortunately, didn't inherit the wonderful manners and kindness that she demonstrated to me that day. Anyway, little anecdote from my past. Hope you enjoyed it, folks. Okay, let's talk about Oliver Berkman. Oliver Berkman writes a column for The Guardian 
called This Column Will Change Your Life, in which he explores psychology and well-being. He is also the author of a book called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Now, I wasn't familiar with Oliver's work before I ran across his book. I think I might have been searching for books about happiness in Amazon or something like that, and I stumbled across it. And you know when you have one of those moments where you go, I don't know who this guy is, and I don't know what this book is about, but it's for me. I knew right away that he was speaking to me because I believe I have the kind of balanced approach to optimism and reality that is pretty healthy. I work hard. I plan for the future because I think the future can be better, but I'm not some Pollyanna-ish type person who walks around going, things are great. If I put 10 more exclamations in this email, it will mean that the news is actually good instead of bad. I never understood that mindset. So when I saw happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking, I was like, Oliver Berkman is talking to me. And some of you might find that he's talking to you too. In the antidote, Oliver explores the true story Sources of human happiness is laid out in philosophy, specifically Buddhism and Stoicism, and in modern psychology. He not only debunks the notion that relentless positivity and motivational retreats make the practitioner happier, but he argues persuasively that the accompanying expectations make the happy-go-lucky visioneers worse off that actually envisioning the future and committing yourself to a rigid set of goals limits your options and limits your ability to live a balanced life that leads to contentment as opposed to the accomplishment of somewhat arbitrary goals that we all set for ourselves. You might have a clear definition of success in your brain, but that doesn't mean that that success is consistent with happiness. Anyway, Oliver offers us a second path toward contentment that has to do with recognizing and accepting the scarier parts of life. That is the antidote. His insights are important, thoroughly researched, and presented with humor that is both copious and drier than a dryer sheet in a very dry place. Like, what's a dry place? A desert, maybe? Yes. More about Oliver. He is the recipient of the Foreign Press Association's Young Journalist of the Year Award and was on the shortlist for the Orwell Prize. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Us, Esquire, and Slate. He holds a degree from Christ College, Cambridge, and he spoke to me from Brooklyn, New York, where he's keeping his distance. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Oliver Berkman. There's a world of difference between really, really strongly preferring that something go a certain way and being in a position of believing that it must go that way. It's not that you have to be totally fine with rejection, with failure at work. It's not that you have to make yourself into a kind of purely Zen neutral person about these things. You can really, really want them to go in a certain way. But in that seemingly tiny step between really, really wanting and like needing them to go that way, that's where you lose your bearings and the ability to sort of stay calm with what happens. It makes the whole of life into this kind of tightrope walk where every single moment you're desperately anxious that this terrible thing might happen and then it's all over for you. And uh, even if those things never happen, that's a terrible way to be. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Oliver Berkman, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks very much for inviting me. Oliver, the title of your book is The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. And before we dive into the conversation, 
in the spirit of transparency, I need to know, are you now or have you ever been a practicing curmudgeon? <laughs> yeah, I think I'm probably guilty as charged. Partly this is just being British, I think. It's in, the, it's, in, it's in the water somehow. I think I came at this with a broadly glass half empty uh, uh, mindset. I don't actually think that's the full message of the book by the time I get to the end of it, but it's certainly, yeah, I think it's where I started out. Why did you choose this topic? Well, one level of that answer is just that I was so annoyed by, uh, there's the curmudgeon again, the culture of of positive thinking. I'm talking not just about a few kind of high-profile self-help books that are explicit about how allegedly the way to riches and fame and happiness is to force your brain to focus on positive thoughts, but I think a broader cultural phenomenon that sort of says we should all be focusing on the positive, on trying to formulate very specific goals and go after them with uh, full energy and all this kind of, it's a sort of broader thing. And I, I, partly I was just annoyed by it and I'd started to encounter some good research evidence to suggest that it wasn't what it was cracked up to be. It was also just this idea, I've been writing this column for the Guardian newspaper for a number of years at that time, in which I'd been sort of testing out various different approaches to the science of happiness and productivity and meaningful life and all the rest of it. And it really did strike me that there was a pattern emerging, which was that anything that was more about learning to get friendlier with negative feelings, learning to embrace uncertainty or insecurity, uh, being willing to contemplate how bad things might get, et cetera, et cetera. Like these were the things that worked and that had some kind of lasting power and that gave you personal resilience, not the ones that were all about trying to force everything to go as perfectly as possible. We'll jump into the counterintuitive findings or recommendations, counterintuitive to many people anyway, but let's start with a counterintuitive question. Is happiness a valid goal? I think writing this book was a step on a journey for me in understanding that actually, no, happiness is not a good way to think about the goal of life that is a useful goal in life. Partly because true happiness, when it comes, seems to come as a byproduct, right? You're doing other things, you're trying to create useful products, or you're trying to build healthy relationships, and they end up being causes of happiness. If you really, really zero in on happiness as the goal, I mean, part of my argument in this book is that that is just an invitation to it all backfiring and you're ending up way more stressed and anxious than you otherwise would have been. Also because I think that meaning is a far better frame for thinking about this stuff, right? That actually a lot of the things that we are most satisfied to have done in life are things that at the time we had no guarantee would actually make us feel more cheerful on a moment-to-moment basis. But we had an intuition that if we did them, we would experience growth. And I think growth is ultimately what it's all about, but that's often not associated with, you know, feeling chirpy. (laughs) Let's talk about some of the manifestations of the positivity movement. Let's say that Stoic philosophers Seneca and Epictetus came back to life, and you took them to San Antonio to the Get Motivated rally to hear, among others, positivity speaker, the late Reverend Robert Schuller, who is the motivational author and founder of the Crystal Cathedral. How do you think our Stoic friends would react? Well, it's an interesting question. I wonder what is happening, first of all, to the motivational seminar industry in the coronavirus era. We just, we just got to think our way through this. Just if we, if <laughs> right. But you can't even gather in the stadium in the first place to get the tools to, to do that with. I think that one little piece of the positive thinking idea they would have agreed with and they would have taken seriously, which is that it is, as you know, in Stoicism, you know, a fundamental tenet that distress arises not from events in the world, but from the beliefs that you hold about those events 
And a lot of uh, insight arises from really appreciating that distinction, that it's something you are bringing to the situation rather than the sort of changing configuration of matter in the universe that is causing your woes, your anxiety or, or misery. I think that's the moment where they part company completely, though, right? Because I think that, as I understand Stoicism, a big part of that idea is to say that what you should be doing if you're going to be changing your beliefs in the direction of more peace of mind is bringing them in tune with reality, in tune especially with the reality of what you can control and what you can't control and realizing that actually what you can control is an extremely small space of things in your own sort of mind and bodily actions and all the other things to do with the results in the world and whether a certain business venture makes you a multimillionaire or whether a certain relationship works out. These are all things that you can't control. Positive thinking basically, certainly in its most lurid extremes, takes the exact opposite view and says that if you really work on your beliefs, you can influence outcomes in the world in a very, very direct fashion. You can attract money into your life. Any goal in any life domain that you set, you can achieve if you bring enough sort of self-disciplined, relentless focus to imagining that it's going to become true or in some versions that it already is true. How does that steer us off course? Well, the sort of core of the problem, I think, is just that basic idea of what they call ironic effects of attempted mental control, right? So that if you attempt to, the old parlor game is, you know, if that's you not to think about a polar bear for two minutes. <laughs> I'm definitely not about thinking about the only way to guarantee, right, that, that polar bears will come into your mind. Or maybe you'll just about manage to sort of force them not to, but it'll be very stressful. You'll be constantly trying to generate as many alternative thoughts as possible. And this sort of extrapolates through, and this is a research-backed insight, this is also my personal experience, but, but this extrapolates to more complex kinds of mental control, like trying to focus on the positive, right? If you're going to try to focus on the positive or on the idea of extraordinary success in the goals that you've set yourself, the more exclusively you try to do that, the more you are obliged to monitor the contents of your mind for any negative thoughts or thoughts about failure, which you then have to stamp out and the backfire effect comes in. So you're, you're actually thinking more about those failures. And secondly, it's just a very sort of brittle and stressful way to be. To finish this thought, I mean, the other thing that it does is it tends to actually raise the stakes in the sense of persuading you that it would be an even bigger catastrophe if the things you want to happen were not to happen which for a lot of people then just leads to sort of paralysis, right? On some level, you, you should be in the position of not needing certain ambitious plans to work out if you want to give them the best chance to work out. So positive thinking encourages us to think about our thinking and live in the future as opposed to in the present. Yep, and to sort of be at war with reality as it actually is right now, rather than fully accepting it as the sort of necessary starting point of anything. Yeah. Thus, you introduce the negative path or you introduce the reader to the negative path what is it and how does that help? It's really a sort of umbrella term for a whole bunch of different philosophies that have in common this idea that by opening to negativity, by learning to tolerate discomfort, maybe even welcome and relish in a way uncertainty and insecurity, by being willing to contemplate the worst case scenarios and all these other kind of things that are the opposite of positive thinking – that this is actually a route to a more durable kind of happiness and a sort of more resilient way of being in the world. And absolutely also, I think it's important to stress, to 
at least, you know, many kinds of worldly success. I think there's a risk of interpreting this as, as there is a risk of interpreting Stoicism and Buddhism and others, you know, as a sort of council of resignation, where you say life just isn't going to be as good as positive thinkers make out. So you've got to work <laughs> on being okay with the fact that everything's terrible. I think there's a role for being okay with the fact that everything's terrible, uh, possibly especially in our uh, current world. But that is not antithetical in my mind to doing great creative, generative things, personal growth, creative work, and all the rest of it. It's actually the sort of first step. It's being totally clear about where you actually are and what your powers actually might be, not constantly trying to trick yourself into thinking that you can do impossible things, but actually really fully inhabiting the scope of what's possible. So I think it's totally consistent with doing the coolest stuff in the world. As I was reading your description of this, what came to mind was that experience in high school where the guy who tries too hard doesn't get the girl and the guy who's just okay with himself naturally attracts people to him. And this is applicable, of course, to all genders and sexual orientations. There's my disclaimer right there. But, you know, the person who is okay with himself attracts other people while the person who is over the top trying to impress others makes himself miserable and lonely. Yeah, I think that's exactly the same dynamic. Part of that is the self-consciousness that comes from trying to sort of control your, your actions and how you're received instead of just sort of falling into the moment. And part of it, I think, is probably the reaction of other people to the idea that someone's trying to execute a strategy with regards to them. (laughs) Um, And so, yes, part of that, I think one way that relates to the negative path idea is in some ways, I think the most fulfilling relationships are those absolutely that can accommodate negativity, that can accommodate people not liking each other at every single moment. I mean, you know, anyone who's in a a long-term romantic relationship surely understands that, you know. Nope, no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) It's not only will there be downs as well as ups, but actually it's a testament to the strength of bond between two people that it's okay for there to be Mm. downs as well as ups. I think there's even research, I didn't put this in the book, but I think there is research that couples that kind of express their anger to each other tend to be in healthier relationships. A controlled burn in a forest to to avoid <laughs> right. the, the downright forest fire, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's a good that's a good metaphor. I think, you know, because the idea otherwise you get to this situation where like, and this is something that I think British people again are probably quite particularly uh, familiar with, this idea that there must never be confrontation. Um, <laughs> and that just fuels the notion that it's really, really terribly relationship endingly bad if there were to be such a confrontation or a disagreement. And I think that applies in all sorts of areas of life, right? It's just much, much more, it's a much stronger position for everyone to be in if they know that the inevitable negatives of life can be contained in what they have instead of that they are so desperately to be avoided that it would spell the end of the world if, uh, if they happen. You mentioned a psychotherapist named Albert Ellis, who seems very non-conventional and interesting. And he had a phrase that is stuck in my head. It's called masturbation. <laughs> Tell me about yeah. masturbation. <laughs> I think he enjoyed the uh, shock effect of that and of a lot of the other things that he uh, he died a number of years ago now, but I, I did get to interview him very shortly before that. The idea of masturbation is, loosely speaking, is the idea of, it's also called, gets related to what gets called shooting in, by some other people these days. The idea that we go through life with the sense that certain things absolutely must be the case for our happiness or peace of mind to be assured. And he would say, you know, that we must behave certain ways. 
that other people must respond to us in certain ways and that the world, events in the world in general, must unfold in certain ways. And what was so powerful about what he said, which was he sort of developed a form of therapy very clearly in the um, tradition of, of Stoicism, there's a world of difference between really, really strongly preferring that something go a certain way and being in the position of believing that it must go that way. It's not that you have to be totally fine with rejection, with failure at work, with anything like that. It's not that you have to make yourself into a kind of purely Zen neutral person about these things. You can really, really want them to go in a certain way. But in that seemingly tiny step between really, really wanting and like needing them to go that way, that's where you lose your bearings and the ability to sort of stay calm with what happens because it makes the whole of life into this kind of tightrope walk where every single moment you're desperately anxious that this terrible thing might happen and then it's all over for you. And uh, even if those things never happen, that's a terrible way to be. I should say that I, everything I'm saying here, I just think like, yeah, I basically wrote this book as therapy for my own particular <laughs> set of neuroses and screw-ups. You know, I, Let's talk about that. What's, what do you want to get <laughs> off your chest today, Oliver? Come on, let's make some news. <laughs> I mean, I am less now, but you know, I am that kind of person who sort of I made myself ill with worry about my university examinations that I had to take, for example, you know, again, because I thought that it would be the end of the world if I didn't, you know, excel. And that is really important, I think, to distinguish from really, really wanting to do very well, which is a wonderful and admirable goal to have. Yeah. But there's a line between wanting it and wanting to do good work and abdicating your self-worth to outcomes that are outside of your control. Right. And that raises a very good point. Ellis as well was a big opponent of the idea of of self-esteem, not because he thought we should have low self-esteem, but because the whole concept of self-esteem, which I think is in some ways a sort of cousin of the positive thinking movement in self-help, it is this idea that like, There is an axis of how good a person you are or how good a person you feel yourself to be. And you should be like trying to get as high up on that axis as you can. But the problem I think he would say is is getting into this game in the first place, right? Getting into the idea that you give yourself a global rating. And I think people like Ellis would say, no, you do good things. You do bad things. You have good characteristics and bad characteristics. But the idea that you as an entire self, that you should feel really great and avoid feeling really bad about like the single entity is again, a recipe for like constantly stressfully trying to keep that level as high as you can, or keep it as high as you can in your kids. And if you can let go of that and just see that you're justified in existing on the world by the mere fact of existing. And then it's a question of trying to do more good things than bad things. There's something very relaxing about and empowering about accepting that and getting out of this sort of global ratings game. At what point in your life did you, embrace personally that achievement wasn't the source of that happiness that you were seeking? You know, that's a really good question. And I'd be interested in your answer to this as well, because oh, come now, on, you ask it, now you <laughs> ask it, I realize that on one level, I've known it all along, right? Mm. That's the strange thing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, back when I was in my early twenties and like, making myself ill about the need to do incredibly well in uh, university exams. I think a part of me understood that this was not the way to live a happy life. And then the thing that is really clear to anyone who sort of comes up as the kind of smart kid at school, and I expect it's true of people who uh, 
you know, really excel in sports and stuff, although I would know nothing about that. <laughs> Even then you realize that the thrill of doing it and I did get do really well in my mm. university exams. But even then, you realize that the thrill of doing it lasts like a day or right. a week, or yes. you know, in some cases, a few hours. And it's kind of obvious even then that there's something wrong with putting your whole life in the service of these very short moments of feeling on top of the world. Because then the next day, it's like, oh no, I've got to really excel in these job interviews or whatever, right? So it's just like, right. it just never ends. So I, for a long time, identified my personal identity from going back to high school even, was I'm the guy oh. that's going to succeed. I'm going to make money. I'm going to be a success through the definition of you know third parties, the world looking at me and the metrics of you have money, you have a cool job. And my goals were horribly low, actually, my definition of what that looked like. But I got good grades because that's who I was defining myself to be. And I don't have any regrets about studying hard. But at a certain point, once I got to, I worked at Facebook, as I've told you, and then I yeah. made some money and I had this great outcome. And then I quit my job and I retired and at 42. And for three months, I had a killer time. And then at a certain point, I was like, why did I just walk away from the best <laughs> job on the planet? And my colleagues, who are some of the most fantastic people I could even describe to you, brilliant, mm -hmm. fun, hilarious, plenty of stress involved with the job. But that was the moment where I said, oh, this isn't completing me in the way that I thought it would. And thus began the exploration of, I started reading. I started reading a lot. I learned about the hedonic treadmill, which is all about our ability to habituate to winning the lottery or having our legs blown off. And so that's when I sort of started to dig in the area where the map said, my internal map said to dig. And I can't mm -hmm. tell you that I'm, I walk around in rapturous glee every day, but I'm pretty content <laughs> with the kind of things I'm trying to do. I take great right. pleasure in having read your book and think through the thoughts you've presented and the opportunity to sit here and discuss them with you. This is not something I'm doing for money, but I get far more satisfaction out of it than I did when I was being paid gobs and gobs of money. Now, the problem here is I suspect that you maybe have to go through, I mean, not everyone's going to get to go through the experiences and that you specifically had, but I think one probably has to go through the psychological process of thinking that these things will save you in order to really understand a little bit more. And I, I don't feel like I'm at the end of this journey of understanding <laughs> at all, but you know, you probably have to go through some of that. But that drug can be, so, it doesn't have to be money. You have a very high status job, you know, as a respected opinion leader at a very well-respected publication. It could be that status. It could be other metrics that people say, maybe that thing is a Pulitzer for you. Maybe that thing is a Nobel Prize for the academic. And all Right. Those and I think, in, I think in all those cases, you sort of have to, you have to shoot for those things and either get them or really completely fail to get them <laughs> in order to, in order to understand that it wasn't the mountain that, you know, made the most sense to climb. I'm just thinking about someone sort of maybe listening to our conversation in their twenties and thinking like, well, can I do an end run around this whole process? Can I just like, can I go for a life of meaning right from the beginning? And I, maybe you can, but I kind of feel like I've greatly value the period that I spent deludedly thinking otherwise, sure. you know what I mean? Nor would I say that having no money is any way to live either. Right. You know, when I interviewed Sir Angus Deaton at Princeton, who co-authored the paper that past $75,000, there's no additional happiness than those below. And you could debate what that number is. Certainly in Brooklyn, it's more than it is here in Atlanta, Georgia. But regardless, at a certain point, happiness flattens out in relation to income. So what I was going to say is like living hand to mouth is no great source of joy either. And now you could find a lack of distraction from all the 
from all the material things in life, but it brings a whole other source of pain that I'm not interested in sharing or advocating either. Right, right. No, absolutely. Yes, this isn't about specific external world benchmarks, I think. I think it's just that like, it's to do with the kind of investment, psychological investment that you make in certain kinds of achievement. And yeah, as I say, I think you probably have to go through a period of thinking that, uh, you know, good grades and the career world equivalents of good grades are the are the be all and end all in order to sort of finally see the hollowness of that vision. But uh, yeah, none of that means they're not good things to have and that, you know, they don't provide these things aren't sources of advantage or privilege. It's just that investing the ultimate meaning of your life in them. I mean, I think the person you don't want to be, I suppose, is someone who in the second half of their life, having reached some modicum of success in however that's measured out for you, just sort of keeps plugging away and not quite understanding why it doesn't bring a sense of fulfillment. So I think it can be quite useful to have like a midlife crisis or something, which I guess in a certain way I have had. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned mountain climbing before, and you talked about the obsession compulsion with goals. And you talk about the climbers on Everest who literally paid with their lives for having overly ambitious goals. Can you talk about summit fever for a minute? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is an interpretation of the Everest tragedy that happened in 1996. I'm sorry, I'm not uh, looking at the chapter right right now. But the year when uh, you know grim records were broken in terms of the numbers of climbers who perished in the ascent of Everest, and the work of a management theorist called Christopher Kay, who's shown quite convincingly, I think, that this kind of slightly mysterious set of um, horrible deaths, because it didn't seem like obviously huge mistakes of sort of technical mountaineering craft were made and the weather was not unusually appalling, et cetera, et cetera, were fundamentally down to this idea of the sort of over-pursuit of goals that once a group of people, an organization, a mountaineering team, you know, has invested in a certain way, in a certain outcome, information that subsequently comes in suggesting that that goal is an unwise one will get kind of adapted and reprocessed as information to in favor of the unwise goal. And there's a sort of fairly, I don't need to go into detail, but there's a a sort of fairly persuasive case that this is what was happening with some of these teams on the mountain. It becomes genuinely very difficult to see that you have to, the time is running out, that you're going to be getting to the summit too late in the day, basically to meet your specified turnaround time, which is this very important concept in these kinds of summits where if you can't get somewhere by a certain time, you won't have time to safely return in the right conditions. Yeah, I just think with a potential lapse of good taste, which you have to sort of acknowledge between a mountaineering tragedy and sort of the daily problems of organizational life, there is this notion in a lot of organizations, I think, that if you're focused too relentlessly on a specific target, a market share, a certain deadline for profitability, something like that, you will cut every other corner that you need to, to make sure that that one metric works out. And you will reinterpret, as I say, you know, information that you should be using to stop and and reconsider as information to boost you onwards. That's the basic idea. So that's a pretty dramatic illustration of what could happen to our personal lives if we obsess with one goal. I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30 or 40 or whatever. And I obsess on that goal, and yet I neglect other parts of my life, my health, my family. Right. I could metaphorically end up a corpse on the top of a, of a mountain of a goal I didn't attain or did attain. Right, right. And it's two things. One is, you know, yes, if you, you say you're going to have a certain fortune by a certain age, you invest your whole sort of meaning of life in it, 
one thing, you could fail, and then your whole life seems like a failure, even though it might not be. More troublingly still, you could succeed, but if you do that at the cost of, yeah, your physical health, you have no vibrant relationships in your life, if, if your work is relentlessly unpleasant to you, then what kind of victory is it? And I think it's important to clarify there, it's not just a question of picking the wrong goal, right? Because in sophisticated circles, we're so down on the idea of wanting to earn a lot of money that it, that it can seem like what you're saying there is just that like earning a lot of money is a bad goal. I think the point is the unitary nature of the goal, or the limited number of the goals. There's a quote that I use in the book from the environmentalist John Muir, which I won't get exactly right, but basically making the point that what you realize when you pull on any one thread of the universe is that it's connected to every other thread in the universe. And it's that understanding, I think, of a life and also of a society uh, in different ways as this densely interconnected web of variables where you can't help but distort some by trying to maximize others. You can't help but neglect some by trying to focus on others. And that's fine because you've got to do things. You can't do everything. But the moment you're focusing too relentlessly on a too small number of life domains, that's a problem, even if those life domains are, you know, great life domains to be focusing on. It's not about prioritizing money being bad because like money is bad or something. Well, it was just money as one example of an achievement you're trying to put in your cap, right? Whether it's summiting Everest or making millions of dollars, these are chosen goals that could distract us from the true sources of contentment. It's the way you're focusing sort of monomaniacally on one thing. Mm. It's easy, as I say, to make the case with money because it's so well known that being extremely rich isn't reliably correlated with being extremely happy. <laughs> Neither is being but, dead at the top of a mountain in Nepal. Right, right. <laughs> but it's interesting to wonder, like, the way to put pressure on my thesis here, I think, would be to say, like, what if the only thing you wanted to do was to sort of start a family, a sort of loving, warm family with children, you know, could you focus too relentlessly on that goal? And I mean, you know, clearly you could in ways that would, I think, that would actually hurt that family. You could have spent all your time focusing on building a home to the point that you didn't have enough money coming in to support it. You could have focused so much on homemaking that you did not give airtime to the parts of your personality that needed to fulfill themselves in career. You know, so it's, it's really just the kind of narrowness of the focus, even more perhaps than, than what you're focusing on. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, you know what sucks? Taxes. No, not paying your taxes. That's your civic duty, pal. I mean, preparing your taxes. And the hardest part for me as a small business self-employed person is keeping track of my books, of keeping track of expenses and massive amounts of income that I earn through podcasting and comedy. But there's a tool that I use that makes it suck a lot less. It's called QuickBooks Self-Employed. It's just a few bucks every month and it saves me dozens of hours every year. Because when it comes to tracking your expenses, QuickBooks helps you answer tax-related questions like, did I really spend $150 on Ubers during the Cleveland Comedy Festival? Apparently I did. Oh, and speaking of Ohio, QuickBooks reminded me that, yeah, in December of 2019, I really did travel to Toledo, Dayton, and Columbus, Ohio for the Funny Bun Clubs that exist there. Yes, when Columbus is the highlight of your month, you've had a really interesting month. Most importantly, QuickBooks reminds me of what might or might not be tax deductible. Airfare to Toledo, yes. Chocolate Buckeyes I buy for my kids in the airport, not so much. If you want to get 50% off QuickBooks online or 50% off of QuickBooks self-employed for six months, click the link in the episode notes. Scroll down past my beautiful green face and click that link. It's industrial strength tax software for just a few bucks a month, QuickBooks. 
Click now. So you found some ways, you tested some ways, experimented with some ways to get out of your head. You jumped off and you went to a multi-day meditation retreat. What did you learn besides the fact that having Barbie Girl, the song from the late 90s, stuck? Would you like to hear it? I have it queued up here. I'm sure you... <laughs> sorry, sorry. That just... yeah, that, that's really enough. That's really enough. <laughs> we can't play it anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good. Oh, what did I learn? That was the first of the meditation retreats that I attended, and I have been back since. One of the obvious things, I mean, this is now in the, the time since the book has been out, a lot more people have, I think, uh, been on those kind of retreats. But one of the sort of now a little bit cliched things you learn is that, uh, you know, when you're in this beautifully quiet setting, everyone is silent and the countryside around you is just idyllic. Your head is still like, that's when you really hear how ridiculously noisy it is inside your mind the rest of the time. And I think the big insight for me on that first retreat was that you then naturally find yourself trying to quiet the mind, which that's apparently what you're supposed to do. You find yourself using the instructions you're given at the retreat as a tool to kind of flatten and eradicate all this, uh, all this garbage mental activity. And that is an example of something where you really need to fully encounter how impossible that is and how counterproductive that is to, you know, two or three days in, suddenly realize that this is getting you nowhere, that actually <laughs> letting that stuff arise on its own schedule pass away is actually a, the only way to peace of mind. And again, that's the kind of peace of mind that comes from being okay with the fact that there's all this stuff going on, that your thoughts are not, you know, going in the exact direction. Would the positivity movement suggest that meditation is a great way for achieving bliss? And if so, why haven't I been able to attain it in two years of meditation? I must be doing, <laughs> well, I do I must be doing it wrong. Yeah, right. I do think it's interesting. I mean, that really traditional sort of canonical positive thinkers were not into meditation, partly just because I think a lot of this influence from East Asia had not come into American ways of thinking at that time. And broadly speaking, I think the sort of Western meditation movement of the last couple of decades is a way more beneficial thing than, uh, you know, the power of positive thinking. But it has been slightly captured, I think, by that Anglo-American desire to sort of instrumentalize everything as a tool for happiness and a tool for worldly achievement. Not because it can't help. Uh, I think it can. But the problem is just that, like, going about it in that way is really unhelpful because I still find it quite hard to express this point. But... A big part of the sort of original Buddhist ideas behind at least Buddhist meditation, I think, is that you need to try to sort of unhook from your wants and desires, not eradicate them, not be someone who has no desires, but again, to sort of, in the phrase, kind of be non-attached to this mental activity, which is a little bit similar to, you know, as with Albert Ellis, having a strong preference without it being something that must take place in the world for your happiness to be assured. And that kind of unhooking, it actually requires accepting the presence of those things. It's not effective in unhooking from a desire or a, a want to try to get rid of it and stop all thoughts about it, because that is a, a kind of negative reinvestment in that desire. You're trying to get rid of it. So when you feel like, just to give a very, very mundane example that's completely prevalent at, at meditation retreats, you feel like restless and you want to get up and do something other than kneel on a cushion with your eyes closed it doesn't work to try to find a way to eliminate that. What works to the extent that anything works is to really, really feel the restlessness to such an extent 
that there's almost sort of no room in your attentional bandwidth to have a problem with the restlessness because the actual present moment physical experience of it is so dominant. I don't know, I hope that makes a little bit of it sense. Makes, it makes complete sense. But you know what I would do in that situation is I would think about polar bears. That's what I would, <laughs> I would, I would, right, I would distract myself, Gros, I think, or Barbie girl, absolutely. So um, it's funny you mentioned like, how is Buddhism consistent and inconsistent with this Western sense of achievement? Can I be a Buddhist or can I practice meditation and still be motivated? I think so. I mean, I'm not, I don't pretend to be an expert on Buddhism. I do know that it is at least as massively diverse a tradition as, right. you know, any other religion. So, you know, nothing, even if I was an expert, no single statement about Buddhism will be accurate all on its own. I guess in general, but, just sort of how are those two concepts consistent or inconsistent? Non-attachment and motivation. Maybe it works best if I speak from a personal place of having a sort of faltering but real meditation practice and still having plenty of kind of ambitions for achievement. Again, I think that it is, it can be very motivating to be in that non-attached place is actually very motivating in a kind of a deeper way, because it means that whatever's in you that is trying to get out in the form of creative work or anything else is less impeded by this mental structure of needing certain things to work. Part of the Buddhist tradition has always been about improving your concentration on your chosen task. And that has, I think, really obvious and straightforward benefits for, for doing anything. If you meditate for 10 minutes in the morning, you are going to be a little bit better at not going onto Twitter if, if that's part of your goal for the day. To, or, to, or at least you'll be less of an asshole at work. Right, right. Yes, exactly, exactly. I do think there is this persistent worry. Robert Wright, in his excellent book, Why Buddhism is True, writes a little bit about this, you know, there's this persistent worry in the West of like, if I really achieve full enlightenment, like what will be the motivation to do anything? And he has a whole sort of very interesting argument for why that might be misunderstood. But the very simple first point is just like, why, why do you cross that bridge when you come to it? Right. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like, I, I'm not, I haven't achieved it. So, um, we should uh, <laughs> go on. Sorry. Most Americans would prefer that you gamify meditation. Right. So that's, that's oh, yeah. so funny about these apps. And I do use an app to meditate with, but it's like, you've achieved this. And it's like, what the fuck does that mean? I mean, like, <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that exactly what we're not? They're like, after you finish your session, share this inspirational quote with your social media Right, right, like, right. Yes, that's yeah. not what we're supposed to be doing here. You're supposed to keep me off of social media, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, exactly. That's the sort of, that's the trap they're in, I guess. All save a very few extremely dedicated meditation practitioners who have probably worked out their own answers to this anyway, don't need to worry that their meditation is about to uh, do something bad to their worldly motivation. It's going to oil the wheels if it does anything. It's going to make life go a little bit more smoothly and improve your concentration and focus. I do think it's worth saying that that's not like, I think if you go about it with that one overarching intent, that's when you fall into the backfiring effect because you sit down on the cushion and you're like, okay, I've got to make sure this goes a certain way because otherwise I might not uh, reach my financial goals for the quarter or something. Right. To get the mental equivalent of six pack abs. That's what we all want. That's <laughs> right. So death comes up a lot in your book, fear of death. And with some interesting things that the connection between the ego and accomplishment and death are very interesting. And you say that making a killing, a financial killing often has less to do with economic need or political reality than with the need for assuring ourselves we have achieved something of lasting worth. Were those your words, uh, by the way? 
I think that I was under the person whose ideas I'm writing about at that point is Ernest Becker. Yeah, you're talking about Becker in his book, The Denial of Death. And by the way, because I read your book, now there's five more books that I have to read because... <laughs> But that's one of the fun things about doing this. So the suggestion being is that all this accomplishment we long after is just to prove to ourselves that some part of us will remain after we're dead and gone. Right. Becker had this kind of grand theory of death denial, that it wasn't just a thing that, you know, denying the reality of our mortality wasn't just something that comes up, you know, when we confront death in our lives or in the news headlines or something like that, but that it completely structured kind of everything, that we were engaged all the time in what he called uh, immortality projects, attempts to spare ourselves from the inevitability of bodily death by trying to achieve kind of symbolic immortality. And the interesting thing about his argument here was that he felt that this accounted for a lot of good things as well as a lot of bad things, right? So yes, people launch territorial wars because they somehow feel that if they reshape the continent on which they're a leader, it'll, it'll outlast them. But also people, you know, write great works of literature or of classical music, partly out of this idea, perhaps even ultimately entirely out of this idea that they are putting something into the world that will contain their spirit and therefore sort of soften the blow of the fact that they will die because on some level we all want to be immortal. Um, it's a great pity that it's not really acceptable to quote certain Woody Allen lines anymore, I guess, but he, he does say somewhere, um, there's a line, I don't know if it's where it's from. He says, um, I, I don't want to live on in the parts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. And um, that's, uh, that makes the, the distinction, right? Where you know you're not going to live on in your apartment and therefore you sort of spend your life doing things that might make you live on in the hearts of your countrymen. I think a lot of the urge to become a parent can be about this, to some extent. And again, I don't think it's necessarily a, a bad thing. I think it does lead to a lot of things that actually are bad and that most of us are so, again, with as with enlightenment, you know, most of us are so far away from being at peace with our own mortality that moving a little bit in that direction can really only help. Uh, you don't need to worry that you're going to get so good at it that you fail to produce interesting work or, or anything uh, of the sort. Yeah. These concepts are all, you weave them all together really neatly. And you asked Eckhart Tolle, who also had the chance to interview, you asked him what kept most people from being happy. And he said, a total absence of awareness, except for the thoughts that are continuously passing through your mind. It is the state of being so identified with the voices in your head that you are the voices in your head. How does that square with Descartes and Cogito Ergo Sum? Oh, great question that causes me to have to like, reorder the parts of yes okay okay i'm just i'm just doing some mental work to connect those back to each other i think that cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am is this sort of starting point of modern western philosophy it's descartes insight that if you sort of systematically set about trying to query every bit of reality you know, how do i know that i'm sitting in this room how do i know that i'm talking to you how do i know that there's a you know pandemic raging outside as we speak in principle, all of those things could be deceptions. I could be a brain in a vat and these could all be simulations. The one thing that can't be doubted is that I am experiencing them. And so Descartes said, you know, I exist. Maybe nothing else exists. Maybe even my body is part of the illusion, but my mind, my sort of conscious self, that exists. And even at the time that he said it, there were people pointing out there was actually a sort of bit of an error in this, which was that it doesn't really show that a conscious self 
cannot be doubted. It shows that the, the sort of act of thinking and of being aware cannot be doubted. The Buddhist insight would be that a lot of the a lot of what we think of as as our own coherent self is kind of a bundle of beliefs and perspectives and thoughts, and that you can, in some sense, see through that and get to this place where all you can really say is that, like, awareness is happening. Anyway, to fast forward to Eckhart Tolle, I think that the interesting point here is that the voices in our heads with which we are identified most of the time, as, as he puts it, it's possible to sort of step back from that to a position of witnessing those voices, of asking, you know, what is the space in which those voices arise. He suggests, you know, if you just wait and watch for your next thought to arise, like you're a cat watching a mouse hole. It's an interesting exercise because as soon as a thought does arise, you see that like your conscious awareness is something bigger and wider or deeper than the thought itself because the thought arose in that space. And from there, there's a whole argument about why, you know, you shouldn't take the existence of your discrete unitary self to be what it appears to be. But there's something incredibly relaxing about just ever achieving that sort of witness perspective in my experience, you know, just being able to disidentify from the thoughts you think and the feelings you feel enough to see that they are happening to you or to something rather than that they are sort of exhaustively constitute you. God. He, he, goes, he, he goes on to talk I tried. about- No, 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 it's good. It's, these are all things that are, that are woven together and that our constant obsession with our thinking leads us to approach the world through a self-centric lens. And this is a self-perpetuating loop. You say that there's no human outrage afflicting the world that he's not willing to attribute to our efforts to defend and strengthen our egos, to reassure ourselves that we exist and that we matter and that we were here. This seems very much relevant to what's going on in the news, not that there is a pandemic, but in the way that people are reacting to the pandemic, that I conflate my political ideology with my sense of self, and therefore I will engage in behavior dangerous to myself and to others to reinforce who I am and what I believe. Right. Wouldn't the world be so much better if we could just get people to break out? And I'm not taking a side. I mean, I, I know where I stand. You probably know where I stand on this. But like, if we could get people to break out of their own ideologies as their self-identities and just see themselves as a more connected part of the world, we would all be happier, wouldn't we? Individually, I, I, and, yeah, yeah. individually and collectively. No, yes, I think so. And I think the really key part to understand in that, it's a really good point, is that, you know, the ego reinforcement motivation often does get expressed as, you know, what's being called tribalism, right? So it often is about belonging in one very specific sense, which is like feeling that you are a member of the in-group, feeling that you are getting one up on or winding up the other side. One of the things that's really extraordinary, I think people have lost track of a bit how extraordinary it is, is how much of our current politics is basically to do with the motivation of wanting to enrage and wind up the other side rather than in another sense, wanting to just like aggrandize your own side. It's this idea of negative partisanship that, you know, it becomes very, very motivating to do certain things to, you know, to quote the meme, you know, to own the libs or whatever it is. To, <laughs> but that these effects actually, uh, none of us can necessarily declare ourselves immune from them, right? I think that there Absolutely. is a... Um, 
There's a lot that goes on, on just to take American politics at the moment, there's a lot that goes on on both sides, which is to do with really sticking it to the other side, whether or not that is actually the best way to get people not to vote for that side that you dislike at the next election or whatever it might be. It's become collectivized through kind of the fact that it's happens on social media and it's to do with wanting to belong to a tribe. But it is ultimately, yes, this exact same thing, I think, of wanting to really firm up your own sense of having a secure ego who is in with the people who like you and who you like. And this absolutely get to this point where the feeling of safety that that engenders will cause you to do things that on any objective assessment make you and everyone else less safe. Yeah. In just a couple minutes we have left, I'd like to kind of leave us on something a little bit a little bit more uplifting, and perhaps you can offer us some prescriptive ways as to how to follow this advice. But let's talk about the words of theologian Thomas Merton. The more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer because the smaller and more significant things begin to torture you. What does that mean to you? Well, I think a good analogy for this is being a kind of a neat freak at home. I I think it's a good analogy because (laughs) I am that kind of person. And it crops up in certain expressions of kind of minimalism these days as well, right? If you're kind of okay with the fact that your home is a bit of a mess because you've got, oh, just to pick an example, a three-year-old distributing bits of Play-Doh all around the entire apartment. If you're okay with that, then you're okay with it. If you decide everything's got to be completely clean, then one single little remaining bit of Play-Doh is like a huge offense against the cleanliness. If you live in a kind of pristine, white, minimalist apartment with clean edges everywhere, like there can't be a single speck of dust in that place because that speck of dust, you know, your standards ramp up and get tighter and tighter and tighter until smaller and smaller things become a problem. And I think what Merton is saying is that, you know, the more you try to make it so that there is total security in your life. The more you try to make it that there is never any confrontations with people, to go back to an earlier thing we were discussing, the worse it's going to feel when a very small instance of that comes along in your life. And I, I really feel like I have spent a lot of my life in this space, right, of thinking that like it would be absolutely terrible if I had experienced some particular kind of professional setback then you're just on edge all the time. If you receive even a very small setback that wouldn't count for someone else, it like triggers that whole thing because you have set a standard that is so out of tune with the way reality unfolds that you can't help but have it kind of um, have reality sort of bang into it all the time. The next book I've just finished the, the main period of work on, uh, I mean, who knows, I've got to go through the editing procedure now, but uh, is it partly, you know, is about... Um, time and time management and this idea of really understanding what it means to think of your time as finite and to realize that like any kind of approach to productivity that is based on getting everything done, even just in the vernacular sense of getting everything done, not literally getting everything done, is just a recipe for this the same kind of stress as you constantly bang into the fact that we're all limited human beings and that the only real approach to growth and achievement comes from sort of acknowledging those limitations. And it's really, I think, the same idea is this, that the more, same underlying idea, I hope it's an interestingly different book, the more you just sort of come down to earth about how life includes negativity, the more you come down to earth about the fact that you're a limited human with a limited lifespan and limited hours in the day, 
it's just so kind of liberating and relieving and empowering. I feel like the thing I'm constantly trying to say about all this stuff is that like, it isn't about despair and resignation and, and like giving up on living an amazing life. It's like, it's totally the first step towards it because it is this kind of total kind of exhalation of acknowledging that reality really is how it is. And that's where you start. And that's where you get stuck in to building a good life instead of this terrible, brittle, constant attempt to reaffirm your, your inaccurate beliefs about, about what's going on. When does the new book come out? That'll be a while. It's going to be uh, next year before it's, uh, before it's available. So how do you put your non-attachment practice into play when you have a project that's taken you years to complete and the worldly success of it is judged within the space of a couple of weeks? Are you able to separate yourself from those two things? <laughs> Not particularly well, no. <laughs> I mean, I think certainly one of the things I'm trying to do in my work and how I write stuff and my sort of personal business model is to be less dependent on those two weeks. Mm -hmm. I think that um, this is something that's happening across sort of publishing and content creation. It's actually less and less about like a tiny little window of time where you might potentially become a huge blockbuster, but probably won't and can instead be about sort of over time reaching the people who really value what you're doing. And actually, in a way, that speaks to this philosophy as well, right? Because it's about not sort of so desperately needing absolutely stellar success on one very specific metric and instead being able to sort of build a life that is secure in a certain way by being not secure in another way, right? I mean, it's like diversifying. It's just like diversifying your investments, right? It's right. Like, and so partly I deal with it by trying to make it not as important. My experience with this book has been that I'm perpetually, the, the antidote, I mean, I'm perpetually surprised by how it finds people. One of the things that I know it sounds a bit like bragging to, to say, but I hope it's clear that that's not what this is, is that people who've been through things far more like traumatizing than I have experienced have found certain aspects of the book really sort of useful and liberating and consoling not because i came up with a genius idea but just because the, i think the power of these ideas that i'm passing along are such that you know the person doing the passing along can be doesn't need to be the person who's experienced them to their fullest limit so anyway that was all just a long way of saying that that i'm sort of consistently surprised by where it pops up and who benefits from it so i can use that as well to uh, non-attach a bit from these kind of slightly more conventional measures of like okay, are you going to hit the bestseller lists? Right, oh, right. Oh, okay, now I've got to be yeah. very depressed. Robert Wright, who I mentioned before, mm -hmm. uh, refers to the weeks before a book launch as uh, the calm before the calm, which I always think is very funny. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, think That's that. hilarious. Why is there not more chaos here? I want a storm. <laughs> well, I'll say this. I think the ideas you espouse in the book, they don't get the play they should in our schools and our churches for a lot of reasons. And I think that uh, anyone who listens to the show and has listened to it would find a lot to be enjoyed. And the antidote happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking by Oliver Berkman. Oliver, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, I'd love them to pick up the book or the audio book. And I'm on Twitter at Oliver Berkman, B-U-R-K-E-M-A-N. And uh, if you search my name on The Guardian's uh, website, theguardian.com, you'll also find a lot of the uh, columns that I've written on this kind of stuff. Oliver, thank you for your time and thank you for your work.
Thanks very much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Oliver. I just did a take of this outro where I was like, thank you, Oliver. That was amazing. And then I realized that that really wasn't consistent with the content or the theme of the show or the railing against false positivity that I did in the introduction or the entire thesis of Oliver's book. So, hey, thank you, Oliver. That was a very very reasonable and enjoyable conversation. I, I like talking to smart people who don't feel the urge to uh, blow us over with their enthusiasm and false positivity. All right, takeaways, three takeaways from this week's episode. We're going to do the takeaways, folks, because it's an innovation I came up with. No other podcaster has ever done it. By the way, speaking of that, I wonder what the overlap, the comorbidity of the negative path and sarcasm is. I'm going to guess it's pretty highly correlated. Takeaway number one, the more I read, the more I learn, the more I learn, the more I want to read. I wish more Americans were addicted to it. In reading Oliver's book, there was about a half dozen things I wrote down. Oh, I want to read that guy's book. I want to read that woman's book. I want to pick this up. I want to, you know, Google this. So it's been a really fun adventure to get to know a lot of the authors of these books that have been the source material for some of my earlier guests' books. So this has been a lot of fun. Takeaway number two, as I get older, the more I believe in the quality of sincerity. And I was asked on a podcast last week, what do you value most in your friends? And I think, I think I like, I want to be around people with whom I know where I stand. I want to be around people who are honest, who are forthright, and who will let you know when you're going to screw up. And that is, I compare that or contrast that to people who will put up a false front of positivity either for themselves or for your relationship in the face of all evidence to the contrary. And I find that to be more than mildly off-putting. False positivity, false friendliness are not cool. You can be an Eeyore and still be a tremendous friend and human being. Takeaway number three, which is probably related to takeaway number two, the more I think about it, the more I think I'm British. I really do. I did 23andMe like five years ago, and I'd grown up always thinking I was German. My dad always told us we were German because the Ollinger name ends in ER, so that makes you German, I guess. So I was German until I got my 23andMe results back. And the first thing it said was, first of all, you're 99.1% white. You're like so white. Don't even try to pretend you're not white. I'm super white, apparently. But what it was, the surprising thing was that I was 9.6% French and German and 80.1% British and Irish. And I was like, ah, that makes sense to me. I have always felt very much at home around British and Irish people whose sense of humor, whose sense of sarcasm just sort of felt natural to me. So along those lines, maybe that's why I cottoned so so clearly to Oliver's argument in his book, which if you find yourself thinking like that, you need to run out and buy Oliver Berkman's book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Check it out. It's been fun. Thanks for hanging around. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.